Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Danielle Dick, PhD, is the Distinguished Commonwealth Professor of Psychology in Human and Molecular Genetics at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she directs a research institute on behavioral and emotional health. She is an internationally recognized and award-winning expert on genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. Dr. Dick has received grant funding totaling in excess of $25 million from the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and private foundations. She has more than 300 peer-reviewed publications and has won numerous national and international awards for her work. All right, Dr. Daniel Dick, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks so much for having me. You are very welcome. Dr. Dick, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your new book, The Child Code. You provided such an interesting angle on parenting, and I think the book does a really, really wonderful job of marrying our understanding of genetics and temperament with themes related to attachment and other critical aspects of parenting. I know for sure as I went through the book, I had a lot of reflections on the temperaments of my own two children, my own parenting style, my temperament, and how I could maybe do a better job of blending all of these understandings together in my quest to be the best parent I can be. I'm not going to say the perfect parent because I don't think that exists, but certainly the best parent, parent I can be. Uh, and, and I thought ultimately the book is a, is very deep, but also really practical. And I think that's something that's very difficult to accomplish. So from my perspective, uh, job well done. I, I think that's so great. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing all of this with you a little bit further. Well, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Excellent. Okay. Well, why don't we jump right in? Uh, Danielle, there are so many books on parenting. Why did you want to write this particular book? I never set out to write a parenting book. I never imagined I would write a parenting book. In fact, I was happily going around being academic, doing my research, writing papers. I did talk to parents a lot. But when I had my son, I found myself raising the challenging child that I study. And I knew that my research was so helpful in my own parenting. And I looked around and I saw so many of my incredibly smart, accomplished friends who were having challenges with their children, really doubting and questioning themselves and wondering, what am I doing wrong? Is there something wrong with my child? And there is a proliferation of parenting information out there. But the thing that struck me was that almost none of it talked about the findings from my field, behavior genetics, meaning none of them really focused on how much of our kids' behavior is genetically influenced. And I thought that was something that was critical for parents and missing from the parenting literature. And so that was ultimately what led me to write this book. Excellent. Well, I guess that's a great jumping off point to my first question. I guess for the record, how strong is the influence of genes on our behavior? And how do we know this? I know there's many ways or modalities of getting to the bottom of this. What are some of the ways that uh, behavioral genetics have gone around establishing whatever link is there? So we know that regardless of what behavior you're looking at, whether it's impulsivity or fillerfulness or anxiety, about 50% of the differences between people, true of kids all the way to adults, is due to differences in their DNA, and the other half is due to differences in their environments. 
And I feel like part of the reason that perhaps this hasn't really gotten into the parenting literature is because people will think, well, I can't do anything about my kids' genes, so that's not helpful information for me. But I strongly disagree because by understanding that our kids' behavior is also influenced by their genes, it can help take some of the unnecessary pressure off of us as parents, meaning it is not all on our shoulders to shape these little human beings from scratch. They've got a lot of inherent biological material that is helping them grow and develop. And the second piece, of course, is that because our kids are all wired differently, it means that they respond to us as parents and to different parenting strategies differently based on their own unique genetic codes. And the way that we know genes are so important is because unfortunately family studies, which most of child psychology consists of, can't really tease apart how important are our parenting practices, the environmental kind of things we're focused on, versus how important are our kids' genes in influencing an outcome. And so when you see similarities between parents and their kids, for example, they both love reading. Well, you might think, oh, well, that's because the parent reads to the child a lot, and so they've taught the child a love of reading. But it could also be that parents are who are cognitively more drawn to reading have children who are cognitively more drawn to reading because we know that reading ability is genetically influenced and our kids are sharing on average about half of our genetic material. So we can't tease those things apart. But there, there are some nifty designs that do allow us to tease apart how important are our kids' genes and how important is the environment. And two of those big designs are twin studies and adoption studies. And so twins essentially come in two types. There are identical twins or what we call in science speak MZ or monozygotic twins, which result from single egg fertilized by single sperm. So it's essentially they are genetically identical individuals. And for some still unknown reason, that zygote splits into two during development. And then the other type of twins are dizygotic twins, which are just like ordinary siblings, two eggs fertilized by two sperm. It just happens to happen at the same time. And so they're sharing an intrauterine environment. And so what we can essentially do is compare how similar are a pair of siblings who are sharing all of their genetic material to a pair of siblings who are sharing on average just half of their genetic material. Because if something is solely due to parents, then it should be, if you're being raised by the same parents in the same home, then the siblings should be equally similar. But what we find for virtually every behavior is that twins who share more DNA, identical or MZ twins, are more similar than DZ twins even though they are both sharing parents, both sharing the same environment. And that tells us that the kids' genes are also important for this outcome. And the other type of design is we can do adoption studies, where essentially we can look at how similar are children who are adopted away from their biological parents, how similar are they to their biological parents with whom they're sharing DNA, but no environment as compared to their adoptive parents with whom they're sharing an environment, but no DNA. And those studies have also consistently found that kids resemble their biological parents much more than you would expect by chance, which again suggests that genes are also important. So 
there's lots of evidence that genes are important. It doesn't mean that the environment's not important or that parents don't matter. It just means our kids' genes matter a lot too. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would it be a fair representation of the parenting frame to say that parents are nudging life outcomes along as opposed to determining life outcomes? Yes, that's a great way to think about it. I sometimes make the analogy of parenting as like the volume knob on a radio dial. So we don't have control of the on-off button, right? We're not, we're not going to totally change our children or make them into something out of scratch. But what we can do is tune up or tune down certain characteristics in our kids. And we call this gene environment interaction, meaning our kids' dispositions don't determine their outcomes. Your DNA does not determine anything. What it does is our kids' genes influence the way their brains are wired. And that's why some kids have a natural tendency to be more impulsive and other kids have a natural tendency to be more fearful or more anxious. And so as parents, the reason I think it's so helpful to understand our kids' unique genetic makeups or their nature is that by understanding what their natural dispositions are, we can help them both accentuate their strengths and also to overcome potential challenges that come along with certain dispositions. I think this next question is going to potentially activate people in a couple different directions, depending on what they think about their own parents. But I remember reading once that heritability of traits actually goes up over the lifespan, uh, owing to self-selection into environments that resonate with our traits. Is there any truth to this? Yes, it's 100% true. There's lots of evidence of that. And that's because another big way that our genes influence our kids' growth and development and their life outcomes is that their genes actually influence the environments they select into. And so as when our kids are little, often they're along for the ride with us, but they can influence what environments we put them in through their reactions to those environments. And so, for example, if you take your child to theater class and they you know, cry and hide in the corner and refuse to participate and get on stage. You might try it a few more times, but eventually you're going to give up on that as a fun kind of activity you're trying to put them in. Conversely, you might take them to the museum. And if they love it, you'll go to more museums together. If they run around like crazy and you're constantly apologizing to the museum staff and disciplining them, you're probably not going to do a lot more afternoons at the museum together. So our kids can actually shape their environments through their behavior and by shaping our parenting when they're little. But as they get older, as you mentioned, then what we have is the ability to select into our environments increasingly across adolescence and into adulthood. And so we know that individuals tend to select their peers based on their own characteristics. So risk-taking adolescents select other risk-taking friends. And then of course that puts them in environments that often further stoke certain behaviors and can lead to, for example, more substance use or you know, risky sexual behaviors or other things that might have stemmed from a predisposition that they selected into an environment that then kind of further stoked some of those behaviors. And this continues across adulthood that we select into environments that are a 
fit with our natural temperaments. So our genes play a role in our behavior, not just by influencing how our brain is wired, but that gets further extended by actually impacting the environments as well. So Danielle, is it fair to say that we actually do turn into our parents as we get older? <laughs> is, that, is that accurate? So every child is a unique mix-up of 50% of biological mom's DNA and 50% of biological dad's DNA. So it turns out that what 50% you get is random. And that's how sometimes our kids end up with traits that we wonder, where the heck did this come from? Because it's a matchup from mom and dad. And sometimes our kids end up with traits that we know exactly where they came from. We recognize that characteristic in their other parent or in ourselves. And so I would say that you know, we of course all have our own free will, but to the extent that some of our wiring is the same, then we do have tendencies to also select into similar environments and repeat some of those patterns as well too. I think it's by understanding our temperaments, or in this case, our kids' temperaments, that it can allow us to be more intentional in breaking cycles that are maladaptive and also in further supporting growth and development in ways that are tailored to each unique child. Just a quick question for you before I ask you a little bit more about the temperament piece. How accurate are parents at perceiving their children with respect to the, their traits or temperaments? I imagine there's always the, there's the potential for some projecting to go on or seeing what you want to see. How accurate are we able to see our children given how we perhaps want to see ourselves? That is a great question, Pete, because of course we are seeing the world through our own unique lens, which is influenced by our own genetic temperamental styles. In fact, one of my developmental psychology colleagues told me once that she had her husband, herself, and their nanny all fill out some standard temperamental questionnaires about their child. And she jokingly said she realized they were all raising a different child. And by that, <laughs> of course she meant the child's behavior was the same, but they all viewed it in slightly different ways based on their own dispositions. And so you can imagine, for example, a child that might be climbing up to the top of a tall tree. If you are a parent who is more risk-seeking yourself, you might say, that's great, look at you exploring, that's wonderful. If you, however, are a parent who's higher on anxiety, you might find that behavior much more concerning. And so one of the things that I talk to parents about is in trying to figure out their kids' unique nature and temperamental style. And in my book, I have a series of quizzes that you can fill out with questions about your kid's behavior. But I also suggest that you have other important adults who spend a lot of time with them fill them out as well, because then you get a sense of how shared your perceptions are and or how different they are based on the way you're viewing that child's behavior through your own lens. There's potentially a pretty important clinical implication of this for those of us who do ADHD assessments or things like this, where we often ask for corroborating evidence from parents or siblings or relatives who would know them well. And I've been amazed to see how different the questionnaires are filled out depending on who's filling it out. And it's hard to know where the truth lies. 
Uh, and you can imagine you can knit all kinds of stories around why mom or dad might see the child one way or another. But I've been surprised at the lack of convergence with respect to impressions of the child. Yes. In fact, one of the things that parents will ask me is, how do I know what is a genetically influenced temperamental trait? And how do I know what is just a phase or what is just child child misbehavior? And one of the things that I tell folks is when you're trying to figure out what are your child's genetically influenced temperamental traits, those are the ones that show consistency across time. And so the more time you spend with your child, the more an idea you will have of, is this just kind of an ebb and flow that you see across development? Or is this a child who is has been consistently, for example, fearful from the time they were very small? In addition, we look for consistency across situations. So do you see this child being fearful at home, at school, perhaps out in public. So genetically influenced trait are those that are consistent across time and across situation. So all kids are fearful sometimes. If you encounter a dog on the street and it's growling at you, then most of us are going to be fearful. But it's the child that is fearful when they just, every time they see a dog or they see somebody that they don't know walking by, or they have to go into a new environment, you start to figure out which are the ones that are more consistent and stable. I talk about to parents about their role as being almost like a little detective in figuring out, okay, these are my child's characteristics that are representing their natural tendencies. The other piece, as you mentioned, is traits that are more genetically influenced also tend to be more consistent, though not perfectly so for all the reasons we talked about, across different people or raters too. So there's differences usually in the degree to which people see a behavior as problematic or not. So things like impulsivity can vary, like we talked about. Some parents will see certain behaviors as very impulsive and other parents who are perhaps more impulsive themselves don't see it as much of an issue. But Though there might be some variability, there tends to be consistency across different raters that start to paint a picture of what this child is like. Absolutely. That's a really, really important point. In the book, you talk about the big three dimensions of temperament, extroversion, emotionality, and effortful control. Danielle, could you briefly outline what each of these are? Absolutely. So the big three or the three E's, as I call them, as you note, they are grounded in the psychological literature and they represent genetically influenced dimensions that kids differ on that have shown up across multiple studies, across multiple cultures, though there are slightly different names for these labels. I call them the three E's because that helps me and I think other parents remember them. And so extroversion refers to how much we enjoy being around other people. We draw energy from that. We like trying new things, going to new places. We, of course, talk a lot about extroversion and introversion in adults, but very often we don't think about it as much in our kids. And I think that's a mistake because kids also show these preferences from very early in development. And it can play a big role in your match with them as a parent and how they are interacting with their environments. And we can talk a bit more about that. The second dimension is emotionality. So we know that some kids 
are naturally more prone to distress, frustration, and fear. And those are the kids who are quicker to temper, who are quicker to get upset about things. And those can also be very challenging characteristics for parents, but they are strongly genetically influenced as well. But that's an area that parents often find themselves wondering, what should I do about this? You know, is there something wrong with my child or should I be doing something wrong or something different here? The last dimension is effortful control or what is often colloquially called self-control, though I like effortful control because it emphasizes it does take effort for all of us not to do what we want when we want all the time. And effortful control is actually made up of a variety of different dimensions, but it um, essentially is related to a children's ability to control their behavior and their emotions. Perfect. Again, I really like the ease of those three E's. I think that makes it very easy to think of it very quickly and to run through one's mind when you're thinking about your own child. You can do very, a very quick sort of thumbnail sketch uh, that actually proves to be quite, quite useful. That's great. Danielle, could we perhaps dig in a little bit on one of these and talk about how we can leverage understanding of the child's temperament, again, within the scope of one of these uh, dimensions to optimize how we relate to and attach to our children? Yes. And so we could start off talking about extroversion. And so one of the things that we sometimes miss as parents is that we create environments for our children, which is very often a reflection of our own temperamental traits. And so if you, for example, are a parent who is high on extroversion, you might take your child to children's museums and festivals and plan playdates with lots of your friends and their kids. Now, if your child is also a child who's high on extroversion, that could be a great fit for them, very socially stimulating, giving them lots of opportunity to interact with others and go new places and try new things. However, if your child, as mine was, is naturally lower on extroversion, then what can happen is you can be inadvertently creating a mismatch between your child's natural temperament and the environments you're creating. And what that can do is lead to family stress. And oftentimes you don't even realize that's the underlying cause. And so when my son was preschool age, I would plan an outing for us every Saturday morning. And I was planning all the things that I imagined would be very fun for us, meeting up with lots of friends and their kids. And as we would be heading out the door and he'd be pulling on his shoes and I would say, guess what? Today we're going to the Outdoor Children's Festival and we're meeting up with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And seemingly out of nowhere, he would rip off his shoes, throw them across the room, storm upstairs and say, I'm not going. And I was thinking, what just happened? And it would lead to this tension and it led nowhere good. It certainly didn't lead to us having a fun Saturday morning together. And what I realized is that oh, my son is far lower on extroversion. And of course, his not fully developed brain didn't have the ability to say, mom, that sounds very overwhelming to me. Could we perhaps do a play date with one other friend instead? Instead, his brain just went into overdrive and he just knew that, oh my gosh, I feel very uncomfortable. I'm upset about this. And it would result in a big fit. 
And so that's one way that by understanding your child's natural temperaments, you can create environments that are a better match for them, or at least know if you're putting your child in a situation that is going to be a mismatch so that you can prepare for it as opposed to being suddenly taken by surprise or wondering why there's you know tension or stress or upset between you and your child. I really, really like that frame. I'm going to ask you about goodness of fit in a moment, but I just want to take a brief detour. That may let, lead us there regardless. Say you have a parent who is themselves very low on introversion, and then they also have a child who's very low on introversion, and they might be unwittingly resonating in this kind of introversion echo chamber where neither of them likes to leave the house very much or to take part maybe in group activities or, or things like that perhaps to the detriment of the child's development, or at least having the opportunity to expand the dynamic range of their temperament, maybe to the max that it can be, you know, maybe for functionality at work or in group settings or things like that. How can parents know when they're maybe operating in a blind spot that feels so resonant to them or egocentric, but maybe isn't allowing the child the full opportunity to develop to the uh, edge of their temperament, if that makes sense? Absolutely. So there are times where when you and your child are matched on temperament, it can make things feel easy. For example, the example I was just giving about if you and your child are both high on extroversion and you're enjoying the same activities. Or sometimes if you and your child are lower on extroversion and you might naturally gravitate towards spending time together doing puzzles or doing quieter hobbies or those sorts of things. But there are certainly areas where when you're matched, it's not necessarily a good thing. And so some of those areas fall in the dimension of emotionality. And so if you have a child who is quick to frustration, and we know this is a genetically influenced trait, it also means that sometimes as a parent, you might be quicker to frustration. So you might understand where that behavior is coming from and recognize it, but when that child all of a sudden is getting really worked up, that might have the effect of you getting really worked up and frustrated as well. And so it's an area where in order to help your child, you also need to reflect on and think about like how you also manage that trait in yourself. Um, another example of where sometimes when you're matched, it can lead to challenges is in kids who are more prone to fearfulness or to anxiety, something that we also know is genetically influenced. It means that they can be more likely to have parents who are more prone to anxiety. And of course, as you know, one of the most effective things in treating and working with anxiety is that one has to learn to manage those fears and to expose the child to situations where they discover, oh, actually, it's not so bad. I can handle this situation. But if the parent is also anxious, they might inadvertently be doing the opposite. So they might be feeding their child's anxiety and or as soon as the child displays some fearfulness, they know how uncomfortable that can feel. And so rather than doing what we know would be good for the child, which is to help press them to explore their boundaries and learn to manage those feelings, they might instead say, oh, I see that you're upset. So we're not going to do that today, or we're not going to worry about it, or we're going to go back home, which unfortunately, as you know, can have the effect of 
of not helping that child get over and manage those natural tendencies. So there are certainly areas where being matched with your child can be beneficial and can make parenting feel easy, but there's other areas where when you're matched with your child, it can actually be challenging for the parent to figure out how to manage their own temperament in ways that also are best for their child and can help their child grow into the best version of themselves. Danielle, of course, it's normative to approach discussing difficult topics with our children uh, with some trepidation. How could we perhaps talk to our children about tendencies that we've noticed within their temperament that could be a challenge for them or based on our life experience could end up causing them some uh, difficulty, especially perhaps if we even share that temperament and we have an insider's perspective around some of the challenges that could be waiting for them. I think it's always beneficial to talk about things with our children. We know that, in fact, parents tend to default to worrying about discussing hard topics with their kids, that whether those are topics that are in the news or whether those are big topics that are important for our kids' growth and development, like sex or drugs and alcohol as they get older. And for littler kids, parents will sometimes ask me, should I talk about these kind of characteristics with kids? Should I talk about anxiety? Should I talk about you know, introversion? Or is it going to cause them to label themselves? I think the important thing is also how we talk about it with our kids. So kids are going to discover they have natural tendencies. And if you haven't helped them understand that and understand how individuals differ and their own unique characteristics, then that can be frightening or challenging for the child. And so, for example, individuals who have anxiety might have felt very different as a child because they think, why do I have all this worry and I'm looking around and nobody else seems to have all of these feelings because you can't, of course, see anxiety and see what's going on in other people. And so talking about these things in age-appropriate ways from the time children are young is, is almost always a really good thing to do. But you also want to talk about them and approach them with a growth mindset. So not the idea of you are this way and so this is it, or there's nothing we can do. But instead, A, we have these natural tendencies, but we can all grow and develop. We all have things that are challenging for us. We all have things that we're more at risk for. And I think that by understanding those things in ourselves and our kids, that's very empowering because then we can know what to focus on to help our kids grow. I started off this segment of the conversation talking about when goodness of fit can uh, go wrong, if I can say it that way. What about when goodness of fit goes right? What does that look like? What are some indications that the goodness of fit is there and things are going in the right direction? So children thrive when there is a goodness of fit with their environment. And by that, I mean that their natural tendencies have an opportunity to thrive and to essentially accentuate their strengths. And so if we go back to introversion, extroversion, we know that kids who are lower on extroversion, so who are more introverted, if you are constantly trying to force them into situations with 
lots of other kids, lots of unknown people. Uh, what could that can do is it can lead them to feel like something is wrong with them potentially. Like, why don't I fit in? And all these other kids seem to be running right off on the playground with everyone else or running right onto the sports team. On the other hand, there are many ways that low extroversion or introversion can be a very positive things. There's wonderful things that come with quiet and space. And people who are more introverted tend to be good friends because they do form deeper friendships with a smaller number of people. They're sometimes paying more attention because they're not always on transmit mode. Um, they can be content with their own thoughts, which can foster creativity. And so if you have a child who is higher on introversion, helping them learn that it's okay. You don't have to be the most popular kid. You don't have to always be the center of attention that some kids like to watch and check things out before joining in, in a group and some, and to find activities that fit their, that natural tendency where they can thrive. So for example, sports or hobbies that are more individual, where they don't feel pressured to constantly be part of a crazy running team with lots of other kids that they you might not know, but they might thrive doing something like gymnastics or you know, skiing or in hobbies, photography, where they can be out with other people, but sort of be behind a lens. My son always loved that. So they can be in the company and presence of others, but they don't feel the need to constantly be on talking to everyone. They can be a part of things, but in a way that fits with their nature. These are all examples of ways that when there is a goodness of fit between the child and the environment, they feel like they are their best self. They don't find themselves wondering, you know, why am I different or what's wrong with me that I don't fit in the way that other kids fit? And that ultimately is what we're going for. I should say it doesn't mean that we're slave to our kids' temperaments. We want to expose our kids to different things. But by understanding their kind of natural set points, we can do it in ways that don't constitute throwing them into the deep end of the pool, right? That, that can help them adjust to the water, get in and realize, oh, I do enjoy this. And so that's one of the reasons that I think understanding your child's natural tendencies can be so helpful in figuring out as a parent what you can be doing to help them become their best self. I think that's so, so helpful. Parents, of course, don't like to talk about their children with respect to having favorites or, or anything like that. People tend to have sort of an anaphylactic reaction to anything to do with, with that. But I think an honest broker in any conversation around parent and child could reasonably talk about fit. And I think parents often harbor a lot of guilt when they have a realization that perhaps they don't fit with one child in quite the same way that they do with another child. Can you maybe speak to how parents could help could frame in their own minds some of the dissonance that could come up as a function of fit and, and how to think through that constructively. So you're absolutely right that depending on the unique characteristics of each of your children and yourself, you might identify or understand or resonate with some pieces of some of your children more so than others. And it can lead to guilt. And so one example might be 
more introverted parents with more extroverted kids will oftentimes talk about feeling guilty that they can't keep up with that child or that the things that that child wants to do are not interesting to them. Or I have the flip situation. My husband and I are both much more extroverted and we have kids who ironically are more introverted and I can really only play kitchen or pretend family for about like five to 10 minutes in the playroom before I am going absolutely stir crazy. And it does make you feel like, oh, but I love this child and I want to spend time with them, but I'm miserable doing this. So I think that recognizing that, acknowledging it and knowing it's okay. We are naturally going to have a fit that is different with different parts of our children. The important piece, I think, is helping all of our children recognize their unique strengths, even when they might be different from our own, and helping them feel loved and celebrated for those strengths. And that might require you to sometimes step out a little bit from your comfort zone. For example, I've had to look up with my kids you know, famous introverts and talk about, see, you know, there's amazing, wonderful things with being a quieter person. Because for example, as they started school, they were starting to feel more left out because they're not the ones who want to be in the front of the classroom and raising their hand. And I am the person who is used to being in front of the room, talking to lots of parents and other things. And so I was afraid that that was further contributing to their Am I not enough? Because I don't want to be up in front of people doing that. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that how you fit with your child is likely to change across development. And so some of the characteristics that can make certain developmental stages very challenging can actually be something that you're very proud of or you embrace at a different developmental stage. And so by that, for example, I mean that highly emotional toddlers can be very challenging for parents. They are the ones that throw big fits when things are not the way they expected. They seem to have very strong senses of injustice and things that get them very frustrated and upset, very hard when they're young. But when they're a young adult, that same sense of injustice that leads them to then stand up for their principles and to fight for things they believe in, that is going to make you really proud and could be something that you very much resonate with. And it's the same genetically influenced trait that was driving you crazy when they were small. It could also be that you and your spouse actually have a fit that changes with your children as they're growing up too. And so for example, um, things like impulsivity in a toddler, that might drive one parent crazy because they hate that things are getting broken in their house constantly, but maybe when they're older, it leads them to do really well in a sport that that parent also really loves and plays. Um, whereas impulsivity in an adolescent, we know is also associated with greater risk-taking behaviors like breaking rules, being out past curfew, um, being more likely to want to try and experiment with substance use. And that could be very hard on a parent 
who wasn't so bothered by the impulsivity in the toddler. And so it's really important to remember that your fit with your child is also going to change as they're growing up. Just as a personal reflection, both of my children, I would say, are higher than average on the emotionality dimension. And I would describe their emotions when they were younger, sort of more like uncontrolled explosions in some way. But now that they're getting older and we can have chats and we can have like, you know, get get deeper and there's language involved. I feel like we're able to package that same energy into say like a cylinder. And all of a sudden, instead of just being an explosion, it's a rocket that can go in one particular direction. So I'm able to sort of shape and, and, and help to sort of curate that energy as opposed to just feeling like it's going everywhere and having no idea what's going on, frankly. I love that analogy, Pete. And I have had the exact same experience with the very challenging son that I talked about who, when he was very young, was an absolute handful. And he is now a young teenager. And I really enjoy his dynamic sense of humor and the conversation that we can have. And in fact, we even laugh about all of the episodes, shall we call them, that we had when he was young. And so I always tell parents who are in the thick of it, it can feel very challenging when you have a child that is still learning to control those very strong feelings. But this is where parenting is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you hang in there, they really can convert into traits that can be a lot of fun as they get older. Absolutely. Well, that might be a good jumping off point to this next question. Danielle, how would you talk to parents or to clinicians about the difference between a temperament versus a disorder? For example, you might have a child who's very low on effortful control. And in another context, we might call that ADHD. Is there indeed a difference or is it really just academic at that point, how you want to label that particular uh, challenge or what you're seeing behaviorally? I'm so glad you asked that question because it is something that frequently comes up with parents and candidly that I struggled with in my own son, even though my background is in clinical and developmental psychology, which is that there is no bright line between what is normal behavioral variation and when it tips over to become a disorder. So as all of us who have done some clinical practice and are trained in this know, in fact, even the very way we define disorders has changed across time. And we define it with these checklists of behaviors about whether the child is meeting that criteria and there's judgment about how severe is the behavior and how much it's causing impairment. And so even experts don't always exactly agree. And so part of and part of the reason for that is that we know that all of these behavioral dimensions we've been talking about, whether it's emotionality, whether it's extroversion, whether it's effortful control, so impulsivity, fear, anxiety, they all fall in a kind of bell-shaped curve. And so it is, quote unquote, normal to have some kids who are very low, a lot of kids who are in the middle, and some kids who are very high on the trait. And what we're essentially doing when we're diagnosing is drawing a line at a point and saying kids above this level are meeting criteria for a diagnosis. And it's hard for experts to do, and it's very hard for parents to do when they only have one or a couple kids as a reference point. 
And so what I often tell parents is that rather than worrying about, is this a disorder or not? Is this normal or not? I would rephrase that as, is this behavior causing impairment in the child's life? Is it interfering with their relationship with you, with their peers, with at school? And if so, then I wouldn't hesitate to seek help. We can all use some extra help. Parenting is hard. And when there are, our kids are having challenges, we especially can use some extra help. And so I suggest to parents to worry less about, is this quote unquote normal or abnormal, or is this a disorder or not? And instead, if the child is struggling, or if you are struggling, then absolutely to reach out and to get help. Excellent. I really like the way that you frame that up. I want to throw a couple different questions at you here. One of the things that I see that is most challenging clinically is when a client is trying to parent across uh, two different households, usually in the wake of a separation or a divorce. Perhaps there's one of the parents who's being affected by a mental health challenge of some kind, or perhaps has a, a personality that's, let's say, difficult or, or a challenge to navigate. I have found that this causes my client you know, extreme amounts of distress because they say, from their perspective, 50% of the time, this child's being exposed to suboptimal parenting in X, Y, or Z dimension. So I guess from your perspective, how high are the stakes actually in a situation like this? And what would you suggest to parents with respect to coping, uh, with respect to the challenge of navigating two different households with different expectations, different temperaments in the parents, et cetera, et cetera? So this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart because my son's father and I divorced when he was very young. And so we were dealing with the parenting across two separate households. And being the psychologist, I was very concerned that we had different parenting styles and rules at our two houses. And I will tell you that I spent a lot of time worrying that I think was unnecessary. And by that, I mean what I have learned both in my own experience and really what the research suggests as well, too, is that Absent situations, of course, where there's abuse going on or those sorts of uh, challenges. But when it's really, we're talking about differences in parenting strategies and styles, I think one of the important things to remember is that it's actually not really our perception of the other parents' parenting style that is important. It's the child's perspective. And because the child is seeing the world through their own genetically influenced lens, which could be different from yours, it's very likely that actually they might view that other parent in a way that is different than you view the other parent. And the other piece is that we know that kids' behavior is a stronger predictor of future parenting behavior than our parenting is of future child behavior. And what that means is that a lot of the things that we obsess over as parents, the nuances of rules and regulations and exactly how you're interacting or talking to the child, we worry that that's going to have you know, big influences on our kids. It turns out there's far less evidence that those little nuances which seem to be such a big deal to us actually have a big impact on our kids' 
future growth and development and behavior. Instead, we know that our kids actually shape our parenting. And that has certainly been the case with um, me and my son's father, that our parenting strategies have actually become much closer over time than they were originally because we are parenting the same child and he is shaping our parenting as well. And also as your kids get a little bit older, you can do exercises to kind of figure out, and I have some of these in the book, to get your child's sense of where you fall on different parenting dimensions. So things like demandingness and warmth. And it can be a very eye-opening exercise because very often your child's views of each parent and other important adults in their life might not match up with your own views of where the other parents and important adults in their life fall. And so I think the most important thing is actually understanding the child's perspective on it. And if the child is not seemingly being harmed or is in a lot of distress about something that's going on in the other household, oftentimes we are the our worry is unnecessary. We're the ones who are most worried about it. The other place I find it can be challenging is when there is a difference of opinion between the parents as to whether the child is struggling and might have some mental health challenges. And that is the one place that I do think that it's worth obviously engaging other important individuals like the school, like other mental health professionals who can help you and the other parent navigate some of those situations And when your child is clearly struggling and there's a consensus that there might be some mental health challenges and the other parent is resistant, that is the one place that I do think it actually is worth pressing forward and working with the professionals and sometimes as necessary in the courts to make sure that that child is having their mental health needs met. But most of the things we're worried about are kind of in that normal differences in parenting style and strategy. And I don't think we need to be as worried about those as we frequently are. That's a really, really helpful take on a very complex problem. I really appreciate the last point that you just made. I've seen parental perceptions of mental illness in children be wrapped into family custody access issues so many times, unfortunately, and often the other parent is blame for being perhaps a precipitant of that problem or, or the opposite of not understanding it. It, oh, it. it can just get so complicated and acrimonious so quickly. And of course, the child is the one left holding the bag in some sense, uh, stuck in the middle of a conflict between two adults, unfortunately. Yes. One of the places that I find that there can often be a disagreement between parents, and this can happen in intact families or in non-intact families, is when the child is struggling with either high emotionality, they are really prone toward outbursts or temper tantrums or a lot of anxiety, or when they are having problems with impulsivity as well too. And very often what you'll see is one parent who thinks the other parent is too permissive, and that that might be contributing to the child's behavior. And um, it turns out that actually, as I'm sure you know, there's not much evidence that it is the permissive parenting. A lot of these things are strongly genetically influenced. And oftentimes, 
what's happening is the parent is responding to the child. And so, for example, children who uh, are much more prone to getting frustrated and getting angry quickly. These are the ones who have, you know, massive temper tantrums and things out in public. You will sometimes see a parent who is responding in what we might as an outsider perceive to be a too permissive way. And this reflects a lot of cultural old school values of they need to clamp down on that child. They need to punish that child. That child doesn't understand consequences. And that's why they're acting out. Well, in fact, what we know is in the moment when children are dysregulated, that trying to impose consequences or trying to use that as a teachable moment or getting upset with them and telling them you need to calm down or stop that actually escalates the behavior. And so while that parent might have started the same place as other parents who are on the outside looking in, what they've learned is that in the moment, actually, what you do want to do, the, the best practice for that child is to attempt to recognize their feelings, meet them where they're at, and help them soothe and regulate. But that can give the outside perception of, well, that parent is permissive and they are causing the behavior as opposed to responding to the child's behavior. And so oftentimes when you have two parents, because you're not always seeing them in exactly the same circumstances, even within a family, there can be this concern of, is that style precipitating or furthering this behavior? And that is really a big misconception as to what, quote, causes some of this child outbursts or misbehavior. That's an incredibly important point. Danielle, something I wanted to ask you about was something that I've seen a handful of times clinically. I'm just wondering if it's sort of a, a thing in your world where you might have an anxious parent who's preoccupied with their child perhaps having a problem of some kind almost with a confirmation bias built in where they will take the child to specialist after specialist after specialist, sort of hunting for a diagnosis and not really being feeling settled until something is, is confirmed, like somebody somewhere finally gives them some indi indication that something's going on. Is this something that, we, that you've seen or that we can understand through the narrative of what you've talked about in the child code? It isn't something I have a lot of experience with, though it makes sense when you view it through the lens of we are all experiencing other people through our own genetically influenced characteristics. And so if an individual is more anxious, the parents say, they might be more attuned toward characteristics that they are concerned about in their child. And in some ways, parents who are more cognizant of family history of challenges can sometimes, that can be a good thing that they are looking for characteristics that might be concerning so that they can get early help for their child. You, I think, are talking about the flip side of that, which is sometimes parents can become so concerned or so preoccupied that they are then trying to get other people to confirm that there might be something wrong when really there isn't. I feel like that is where actually, when you are uncertain about things, having other individuals, mental health professionals who can who have a larger sample of children, for example, that they've seen to give you feedback can be very helpful. And then it's your job as the parent to recognize and to think about why 
that might be something you are concerned about. What is the lens through which you are viewing your child? And what are the ways in which that's helpful? Could be that you're more attuned to potential problems in your child. That's a great thing. We want to be attuned to if our child is having challenges or what things they might be at risk for and how we can talk to them about that. But you also want to be aware of what could be some of the not so good things, which are this potential confirmatory bias of being very concerned anytime there's a little blip in the road because of your own personal history. Danielle, one last question for you here. On behalf of all the, maybe the teachers or the coaches or people who are involved with children who are not their parents, are they able to leverage some of these same understandings or learnings in order to more effectively interact with the myriad of children that they might encounter in the classroom, on the sports field, things like that? Absolutely. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that presumably you and potentially your partner are not the only important adults in your child's life. There are, as you know, teachers, coaches, grandparents, other caregivers. And so I do think it can be very beneficial to talk to those individuals who are playing a long-term consistent role in your child's life. Maybe you don't necessarily want to get it get all into it with the babysitter who's going to be dropping by for one hour. But for these other adults, for them to help understand your child's temperamental characteristics and the ways that that could create potential challenges in different settings, that's very helpful information to have. And so one of the things that I talk to parents about is that for example, at the beginning of the school year, usually parents will reach out and either via email or via one-on-one -on -one conferences, or you know, it'll depend on the nature of the school and the teacher, but they invite input from parents. And parents will sometimes say, I don't know if I should talk to my child or my child's teacher about some of these challenges, perhaps, you know, last year they uh, had more trouble sitting in their seat because they're a little bit more impulsive and they are lower on effortful control, or perhaps it's a child who is more introverted. And so they don't speak up as much in school. And so sometimes they can be overlooked. Sometimes parents think, I don't want to talk to the teacher about that because I don't want to bother them or I don't want to plant a seed and have them look at my child in a certain way. Well, the reality is your child's teacher, coach, grandparent, et cetera, they are going to figure out these things about your child. And usually they want helpful information to help them, you know, in the school setting, have their best year to essentially have their best performance in the classroom. And so, for example, if they know, oh, this is a child who's naturally more introverted, then they won't be wondering, why does this child never speak up in class? Why are they always quiet? You might, they, they might have an opportunity to realize, oh, in smaller group settings, they do great. And so by understanding our kids' temperaments, we actually can help other important adults in their life recognize how they can also, you know, help raise that child to accentuate their strengths too. Wonderful. Danielle, if people want to find out more about you or the work that you do, where can they go? 
You can find me online at danielledick.com where there is more information about all the things we talked about and free resources. I'm on social media at Dr. Danielle Dick across Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. And you can learn more about the book at thechildcode.com. Excellent. Well, the book is The Child Code. I really, really enjoyed it. Despite having read a billion books on psychology and parenting and whatnot, I found a lot of new angles that were really helpful. So thank you so much for your contribution to the parenting literature. It was a really, really cool read. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. You are very welcome. Uh, Take good care and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.